This morning our scripture reading is coming from Acts chapter 3. We're reading Acts chapter 3 verses 11 to 26. This is one of Peter's famous sermons in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 starting in verse 11. Just remember the context. He's just, Peter and John have come and they've seen the beggar outside the gate of the temple. And in the name of Jesus Christ, they've commanded him to stand up. And he stood up and walked and now everyone is praising God. This is what Peter preaches. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. Let's pray for God's help as we come to his word now. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give all of us here a clearer view of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that as your word goes forth now, that you would convert sinners, that you would convict and encourage your saints, and that you would receive glory. We pray, Lord, that all of us would respond in faith to you and to what you have done in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning our sermon comes from Mark chapter 3. Verses 20 to 30. That's Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. I know the bulletin says that we are going all the way up to verse 35, but I realized that was a little too ambitious. So we will finish the rest of the passage in two weeks' time after Christmas. So Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. And Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. 
And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus is either the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. You may have heard that before. It's a summary of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. And the beauty of it, saying that Jesus is either the Lord or a liar or a lunatic, is it it makes us think about our reactions to Jesus. Because what Jesus says and what Jesus does confronts us. All of us, actually every single person in the world, has an opinion about Jesus. Now if I could change Lewis's categories a little bit to fit our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is either deranged, he's crazy, he's out of his mind, or he's demon-possessed, or he's divine. And for us to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is divine, that he is the Son of God, we need God's help. And that leads us to the main idea of the passage then, that God helps True followers of Jesus believe and submit to Jesus. Again, it's God's work. He helps true followers of Jesus believe and submit to Jesus. We're going to see two points here this morning. We're going to see two wrong responses to Jesus in verses 20 to 22. Then we're going to see the true identity of Jesus in verses 23 to 30. So first, two wrong responses to Jesus, verses 20 to 22. In these opening verses, we meet two groups of people, and both groups wrongly respond to Jesus. There are Jesus' family and friends who want to control Jesus, and then there are the scribes who want to condemn Jesus. We first meet his own people or those around him or his family, depending on your translation. These are probably Jesus' family and friends, those who know him best. We'll actually see them come back at the end of the whole passage in verse 31 as they come to get Jesus. Now, these family and friends who know Jesus, listen to their reasoning in verses 20 to 21. So then he went home, was talking about Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus has just returned from appointing the 12 apostles, we saw that in the previous passage, and immediately as he comes home, he is mobbed by the crowd. 
and there are so many people in the house that he and his disciples can't even eat a meal. As we saw earlier in Mark, this kind of popularity is typical of Jesus' early ministry. Remember Mark 2, when the man has to be let down through the ceiling. Why is that? Because Jesus' house is so crowded when he teaches that no one else can squeeze in. And you remember from last week, the crowds that we saw on the beach, they were in danger of crushing Jesus because they wanted to be close to him. For Jesus' friends and family, though, Jesus' popularity was becoming a problem. You can imagine the conversations that they were having back home. He's always teaching. He's always healing. He can't even find time to eat. He isn't taking care of himself. That would be natural, maybe, as they look at what's happening. But listen carefully to their actions and their attitudes. They went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. This is a plan to control Jesus. They want to seize Jesus because in their mind, the situation is now so serious that they need to physically remove him from his place of ministry and bring him home. And we we see why they think that they need to take this extreme action. He is out of his mind. Jesus' friends and family think he's crazy. They think he's crazy. And this plan then to control Jesus, actually comes from their unbelief. His friends and family at this point do not believe that he is the Son of God who has come to save his people. They do not understand Jesus or his ministry, and they do not believe that what he is doing in this house with this crowd is exactly what he should be doing, nothing else. This is what God the Father has called him to do. Jesus' friends and family want to stop him from doing his father's will because they see his devotion to the ministry that his father has given him and the ministry that the Spirit has empowered him for. They see that devotion as insanity. He has gone too far in his service of God. Again, these are the people who know Jesus best. They took care of him when he was a little boy. They grew up alongside him. They have seen time and again that he is not like any other person that they have ever met. And yet they have never, ever believed in him. Well, while Jesus' friends and family are on their way to Jesus' house in Capernaum, Jesus turns to confront another group of people who wrongly respond to him. That's the scribes. And their sin, the sin of the scribes, is much more serious because they condemn Jesus. Look at verse 20. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. These scribes are the religious leaders of Israel. They worked alongside the Pharisees who we've already met in Mark. And this particular group that we see here has made a special trip from Jerusalem all the way up to Capernaum to confront Jesus. And what they're doing is they're delivering a public official judgment about Jesus and his ministry. And their charges that they level against Jesus are extraordinary. It it is bad enough. 
if they were to say that he was possessed by a demon, they are already so far wrong with it when they say that. But they go further by saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, by Satan himself. Think about what they're saying. They're saying that Jesus is under the power of God's greatest enemy. And that's the reason why Jesus is able to cast out other demons. The scribes reach that conclusion, this shocking conclusion really, because they can't deny the facts. Jesus is able to cast out any demon, anytime, anywhere, with no apparent effort and with no resistance from the demon, right? Jesus' power and authority is extraordinary, like nothing any other man has ever had. The scribes cannot deny those facts. They can see it with their own eyes when Jesus casts out demons. But they respond to Jesus, and they respond to what he's doing with unbelief. They cannot believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the one and only explanation of the facts that they will never accept. Instead, they see the power of Jesus, and they call it the power of Satan. Both Jesus' family and friends and these scribes here had plenty of evidence of who Jesus was. They knew Jesus. They heard his teachings. They saw his miracles, but they had no faith. This is what sin does in our lives. We see the truth about God and sin and salvation in Christ, and in our sin, we reject it. Because of our sin, the facts are not enough. We do need to know that we are sinners. And we need to know that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. That's us. And we need to know that by believing in his name, we will be saved. But we need so much more because we need God to give us faith. To see that those things are true and true for us. And then to change our hearts and to enable us to believe. Are you surprised by these wrong responses of the family and friends and the scribes? You shouldn't be, because all of us outside of Christ respond wrongly to the salvation that is being offered for us. But that's where Jesus turns next, to point away from the people and to point toward himself. That's what we see secondly, the true identity of Jesus in verses 23 to 30. As Jesus responds to the scribes, he exposes their sinful lies and he shows them who he really is and what he's doing. In verses 23 to 26, Jesus makes the same point in a few different ways. He says, if Satan is fighting against himself, like what you're saying, then he's done. It's over. Satan's kingdom and power are coming to an end. We understand what Jesus means. There's great strength in unity. And so any country that's torn apart by civil wars or any family that is constantly fighting is not going to be able to accomplish anything. In fact, they're extremely vulnerable now. So if you follow the logic of the scribes, it makes no sense. They've taken one thing that is true. Satan is being defeated when Jesus casts out demons And they've taken that and they've arrived at a completely wrong 
explanation. And Jesus cuts right through their sinful lives with the truth. Satan is not fighting against himself. There is no civil war in Satan's kingdom. No. Jesus is conquering Satan and his kingdom. That is the truth. Jesus says it this way in verse 27. It says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Again, we know what Jesus is talking about from our own experience. That makes sense. You can't just break into somebody's house and take whatever you want unless that person is not able to resist you. We know that from our experience, and Jesus is saying that's exactly what is happening as he comes into the world. This is exactly what he's doing with Satan and his kingdom. Saint Jesus is plundering Satan's house. Jesus has come to the world where Satan rules. He is the prince of the power of the air of this world. And Jesus has come and he has become, begun plundering. Now, that, that's such an important word there, plundering. Jesus is giving us a picture of total control. Right? Jesus is not some kind of robber sneaking into Satan's house and trying to steal something without being caught. No, Jesus can take whatever he wants from Satan whenever he wants to. Jesus can cast out any demon and rescue any of his people And Satan can't do anything about it. This is exactly what Jesus came to do. His mission was to defeat Satan and to rescue his people. Now, that might not be how we typically summarize the gospel. But it's such an important part of understanding Jesus and his work. Listen to a few passages that make this so clear. 1 John 1.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came, to fight against the devil. Well, listen to Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Defeating Satan and rescuing his people is part of what it means for Jesus to bring the kingdom of God. Remember that that is the good news of Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And we see in Jesus' ministry, in Jesus' words here, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan cannot coexist. We've already seen this conflict in Mark, especially during Satan's temptation of Jesus right after he was baptized. Satan was trying to land that knockout blow to stop God's kingdom advancing. But we've also seen this conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan in almost every verse so far in the gospel. Because every time Jesus proclaims the truth, every time Jesus heals the sick, every time Jesus casts out demons, every time someone believes in him, every time any of those things happen, Jesus wins another victory over Satan and his kingdom. You notice that in that list I just gave you, I mentioned a lot more things than just casting out demons. And that is because this principle of here, 
of Jesus coming into the world and binding Satan and doing his work, that principle explains all of Jesus' work from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Jesus defeats Satan. Remember the first promise. The first promise about Jesus, Genesis 3.15, what is he going to do? The promised son will bruise the head of the serpent, Satan. That's exactly what we're seeing in Jesus' ministry now. His victory. And think about what Jesus does later, what he accomplishes on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross seems like Satan's greatest victory. You know, all those earlier defeats by Jesus, they can be forgotten. Because at the cross, it looks like Satan has been able to defeat Jesus. But what does Paul say in Colossians? At the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians 2.15. Those rulers and authorities are Satan and his followers. Jesus wins. Or think what we just read, again, from Hebrews chapter 2. Through his death on the cross, he has defeated Satan. If we look forward, we see Jesus' final victory over Satan in the book of Revelation when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur to suffer forever, Revelation 20.10. And when that happens, the kingdom of God is established forever. Jesus defeats Satan. But let me bring it back to the scribes then. When they conclude that Jesus is possessed by Satan, they aren't getting just a little part of his identity and ministry wrong, right? They are getting one of the greatest truths of all of history wrong. That's the significance of their sin. God fights Satan through Christ. And we can understand how wrong they are, especially when we see that big picture of Jesus and his work. It's true, the scribes didn't have the full picture that we do, but they had enough. They had more than enough to know the truth and to be condemned for the true evil of their sin. And that's why Jesus can make those chilling statements in verses 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the enormity of the scribe's sin. Jesus says those scribes will never ever be forgiven for what they have said and what they believe. Part of the way Jesus shows how serious their sin is, is actually by reminding us of just how gracious and merciful God is. He says God can forgive any sin or any blasphemy against him, except this one. Except this one, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus mean? What is this sin, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Look at the context. We see from verse 30 that Jesus says the scribes are doing this. They are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit when they said Jesus was possessed by Satan. When the scribes condemn Jesus and they say that his work is actually the work of Satan, they are purposefully, maliciously taking the truth and turning it into a lie. They're actually taking their only hope of salvation and they are turning it 
into condemnation. What they have done is an attack on the Holy Spirit. They're attacking the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps people understand who Jesus is. The scribes are purposefully rejecting what the Holy Spirit teaches them. They are not ignorant. They understand an enormous amount and they reject what they know. And what the scribes do is also an attack on the Holy Spirit because Jesus does all of his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he's anointed by the Spirit at his baptism. Not because he's weak. He is the Son of God. But he's baptized because he serves in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the scribes are attacking the Holy Spirit by saying that the Spirit's work through Christ is evil. This rejection, these attacks come from hearts that are hardened against God. It may not look like it because these scribes are the most religious of people in Jesus' days. It might not look like it if you saw them on the outside, but if you looked into their hearts, you would see that they desperately hate God and hate his work. What does that kind of sin look like today? What does blaspheming against the Holy Spirit look like today? Well, I'll first say what many others have said. If you are worried that you somehow have committed this sin, you probably haven't. Okay? It's just pastoral advice there. Don't worry. If God is telling, if you are if you're concerned about this, be assured you have not done this. Because this is coming from a heart that is hardened against God's truth. But what else can we say? Well, we have to stick to Scripture, right? Hebrews 6, 4-6 has a very similar warning to what we hear from Jesus. The author there says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. See the similarity in those two things that in the book of Hebrews and in Mark, we see people who know who Jesus is and are purposefully rejecting him and going beyond that by actually calling him and all of his work and his character evil. Now, I think today our job is not to try to think about people who fit this description, right? We're not supposed to say, well, that person has done that sin, that person has done that sin. You know, we're not playing God. Instead, it might be more helpful for us to take the warning of the scribes and the warning of the Hebrews to heart and seek to honor and serve God. And instead of dwelling on this one sin, we should take comfort in the power of the gospel and the grace of God because God saves sinners. He is able and willing and delights to forgive sins and even blasphemy, blatant blasphemy against him. Do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that God can save sinners like that? Think about Paul. It's hard to imagine someone worse than Paul because of what Paul did to the church. But listen to his own words. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. 
what was true for Paul, both his own sin and the salvation that Jesus gives him was true for so many of the Jews who rejected Jesus and even condemned him to death. When Peter preaches in Acts, he exposes the sin of the people. We read from one of his sermons earlier, Acts 3. He says, but you, he's looking them in the face, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Can you think of a sin that seems more serious than that of actually crucifying Jesus Christ and yet Peter preaches God's grace to them. God will even forgive their sins, those sins committed in ignorance and God keeps that promise. And we see at Pentecost and we see all the way through Acts, God saves thousands who hear the gospel preached. We see it in Paul, we see it in the time of Peter, and we actually also see it in the lives of Jesus' family and friends. In this passage, we see them trying to control Jesus. But by the time we reach Acts, we can read this. Acts 1.14. All of these, talking about the apostles, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together, listen, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. God has been gracious to these very same people who tried to control Jesus, and he has now brought them to faith. We see that kind of power and grace in ourselves as well, because each one of us here, who is a believer, started out as a sinner, rejecting God and his rule. We didn't want to be in the kingdom of God. We loved the kingdom of Satan. We loved being in the darkness. And yet he graciously and powerfully gives us salvation. That salvation that's won for us by Christ and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. God is able and willing to save sinners. So think about where this passage leaves us. I just want to make two points of application. First, as we see Jesus' power over Satan so clearly here, First, rely on that power. Rely on Jesus' victory over Satan. His victory over Satan has so many practical applications for our lives. Let me give you a few. Jesus' victory over Satan encourages us as we look at the future of the church. You know, we prayed for the persecuted church earlier, and it's tempting as we look forward into the future to not know what might happen here or around the world or whatever. Jesus promises, though, that he would establish his church. We have his promise, and listen to what he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan will never, ever be able to defeat Christ's church because Christ has a victory over Satan. Christ's victory over Satan also encourages us in our witness because when we share the gospel with someone, we're sharing the gospel with someone who is under the power of Satan. They are bound by their own sin and they are bound by Satan. But Jesus has the power to free that person from following Satan. Think about Ephesians 2. Paul says that we are dead and that we are following Satan. But God in Christ can make us alive and take us out of that darkness and put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So when we share with somebody... Share with confidence. Jesus' victory means that his people will respond to
to his word and be saved. Jesus' victory also encourages us in our fight with Satan, our own personal fight with Satan, because we feel Satan's temptations, right? Each one of us. We feel his temptations to to be discouraged or to commit so many other kinds of sin. But as Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might as we resist Satan. Ephesians 6, we now share in Jesus' power and victory. So pray for his strength, especially in times of temptation. Again, first application, rely on Jesus' victory. But secondly, rejoice in being a follower of Jesus. The only reason that we are not like Jesus' family and friends or as hardened as the scribes are, the only reason we are not like them is because God has been gracious to us. And he has made us followers of Jesus Christ. That is something to rejoice in. And as we rejoice in that, really understand the marvel and the amazement and the wonder of what God has done for us, let's pray. Pray that God would bring faith to those who know the gospel but have not yet believed. The facts of the gospel alone will not save them. They need to know the gospel, but they also need God to give them faith. And he gives faith in abundance to so many people. Continue to pray that God would give faith to specific people you know. And that God would continue to do the good work that he has been doing in your life in their life as well, to make them followers of Jesus Christ. God alone is the one who does that. And God will help each one of his people to come to faith and to believe and to serve as a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are the true and living God and that Jesus Christ, you are our one and only Savior. We know that there, is, there are so many around us in Jesus' day and today that do not accept that. And Lord, we are so sad as we see unbelief in the people around us. And yet, Lord, we have hope from this passage that you will save your people. You've done it for us and you've done it for so many people in the past, even those who have opposed you. And seem so far gone that they'll never be able to come to you. And yet you bring them. You powerfully draw them. And you will do that work today. Lord, help us to rejoice in our salvation, to rely on your victory. And Lord, also to proclaim your power and your grace to those who desperately need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.